Welcome to Witness, a ministry of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Jackson, Mississippi. Join us in person for worship each Sunday at 9.30 a.m. For more information about Covenant, including discipleship and mission opportunities, visit us at www.covenantpresjackson.org. This passage of Scripture has left many readers of the Bible confused and unsettled. What does it mean that the sons of God were having children with the daughters of man? Sounds like the stories of trickster gods in mythology. And who were the Nephilim, or in other translations, the giants, described as being the mighty men of old, the mighty men of renown? Were they demigods like Hercules? And what does it mean that God regretted his creation? And then the most unsettling part, God declared his intention to blot out man and animals from the face of the earth. Now what in the world do we do with a passage like this? Well, we must seek to understand it because it's God's word. But we should do so with the humble recognition that God is God and we are but his lowly servants. As much as we want to possess perfect knowledge and understanding of all divine mysteries, we must accept the limits of what God has revealed. And we must remember that the ultimate goal of reading scripture is not to acquire more knowledge, but to grow in faith, obedience, and love. Now, what makes this passage so challenging is that there are a number of interpretations which find support in the grammar. And differing views have been held by faithful men and women throughout church history. But I find comfort in sharing the view of Augustine, Luther, and John Calvin. The key to understanding this passage lies in careful consideration of the context in which we find it. In Genesis chapter 3, God pronounced a curse against the serpent for deceiving Eve, saying, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And so right there, you have a distinction between two sets of offspring, the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. Now that word seed, just like the word offspring, is both singular and plural. And the ambiguity is intentional because there is an ongoing conflict between all the offspring of each line and an ultimate conflict between a future individual offspring at the head of each line. Ultimately, it's the battle between the Christ, whom we know to be Jesus, and Satan. And so Jesus and Satan are the representative heads of the two seeds. And throughout the Bible, there are various ways of referring to those two seeds. The most common in the Old Testament is Israel and the Gentiles. 
In the New Testament, Jesus redefined Israel as all those who are united in him through faith. And so now you have the church and those who are not part of the church. But here in the earliest days of history, the two seeds are the seed of Cain and the seed of Seth. Last week, Parker preached an excellent sermon on the seed of Cain. It's a remarkable testimony to God's grace and mercy built into his providence that so much material success was achieved in the lineage of a man cursed for murdering his brother. But incredible violence was mixed with the progress. The chief patriarch was a man named Lamech who took two wives and boasted of his violence and distorted view of justice. Though his very existence was owed to the mercy of God in sparing Cain, he boasted in the fact that he wouldn't show mercy to even a child. The seed of Seth was very different. His genealogy includes the statement that at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. His line included Enoch, who walked with God, and Methuselah, who was blessed with the longest life of anyone in the Bible. And eventually his line led to a very different Lamech than Cain's. Seth's Lamech spoke words of hope regarding his son, Noah. Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Now, this Lamech recognizes the curse, the fallen nature of the world, and he has hope for deliverance in his seed. He lived to be 777 years, a long, full life marked by the number of completion, seven, in a stark contrast from the other Lamech, whose revenge was 77. Now, I recognize that the lifespans of these patriarchs are unusual. People have speculated about whether it had to do with their diet or the makeup of their genes or whether it was just a special provision of God that was necessary to allow time for a sustainable level of population to be produced. Uh, there's no way of knowing because the Bible doesn't say. All we can do is receive what God has revealed to us. But if you add up all the numbers given throughout the genealogy, you can calculate that 1,656 years have passed between the creation of Adam and the coming flood. That's a lot of time about which the Bible is silent, other than the names and deaths of key patriarchs. Well, the first sentence in Genesis chapter 6 is a transition statement taking us from the two genealogies back to historical narrative. The sentence describes the overall period of time. It was during those 1,656 years of ancient history that the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and took wives among them. I'm convinced that the sons of God are the descendants of Seth. 
The genealogy of Jesus in Luke's account of the gospel traces his lineage through Noah, and it concludes with the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Adam can be rightly referred to as the son of God through adoption by faith, just as we are the children of God by adoption through faith. So then the first two verses in chapter six are simply saying that over the long period of time between Adam and the flood, various descendants of Seth intermarried with the descendants of Cain. Members of the godly seed married faithless people, a practice which will later be expressly condemned in the law of Moses. Israelites were not to intermarry with the pagan nations because it will cause them to adopt their practices and ultimately lead them away from the Lord. But why would Seth's sons and grandsons marry Cain's daughters? You'd think the two lines would be like the Montagues and Capulets in the story of Romeo and Juliet, or the Hatfields and McCoys. I mean, the conflict started with murder. Was it forgotten over time? Were they enticed by the cities and technological advances in Cain's line? Probably, but the main reason is explicitly stated in verse two. They saw that they were attractive. And that right there is the foundation of many marriages. Like a fly drawn to the light of a bug zapper, physical attraction often overrides our better judgment. Now, physical attraction is a good thing in a marriage, but it's not the main thing to look for. Proverbs 31.30 puts it best. Charm is deceitful and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Now, the descendants of Seth were far too indulgent in their selection of wives and it drew their hearts away from the Lord. And it will happen again and again throughout Scripture. And each time the people of God intermarry with foreigners, they turn away from the Lord. It's a significant danger to faith, which is why the Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians in no uncertain terms that Christians should not be yoked with unbelievers. Now, he was careful to point out that if you are already married to an unbeliever, then you shouldn't divorce your spouse, but seek to set an example out of love. But if you're not married and you're a Christian, then by no means should you marry a non-Christian. It's unwise. And people often do so with the hope that they'll change them. And, and sometimes in God's providence, an unfaithful spouse does come to know the Lord but more often than not, it works out the other way, which is what's happening in Genesis chapter six. The intermarriage between the descendants of Seth and the descendants of Cain did not bring about peace between warring tribes. It produced greater wickedness. Now, those unnamed sons of Seth were sons of God through their lineage, not their faith. Not unlike someone today who claims to be a Christian yet lives a life indistinguishable from the world. 
And God was not pleased by these intermarriages and declared in verse 3, My spirit will not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. Now, this may sound like a rash judgment, but it's not. God is patient with his creation, and he's been patient for well over a thousand years. But did mankind flourish under his patience? No, they deteriorated before his eyes. And so the time has come for judgment. But what is the judgment? It sounds like God's limiting the lifespan of individuals to 120 years, but that doesn't make sense because there are plenty of people who live after the flood and up to the time of Abraham with unusually long lives. This is the announcement of a coming judgment upon all mankind, like the one Jonah gave to Nineveh in which he said, 40 days and Nineveh will be overturned. The Lord assessed the situation and declared that in 120 years, his judgment, the great flood, will come. And so again, we see that God is patient and slow to act. He gives them 120 more years. But will the people repent like the Ninevites did? Well, the next puzzling part of this passage shows up in verse 4. The Nephilim. What are they? Well, the verse seems to suggest that they're the children of these mixed marriages, but the grammar can also mean that the Nephilim lived in the land at the same time of these intermarriages. But who are they, and and why does the King James Version translate it giants? The etymology of the word is uncertain, but it seems to be related to the word fall, so perhaps it means the fallen ones. The word only shows up in the same form in one other place in Scripture, the report of the spies in the book of Numbers. You might recall that Moses sent spies to check out the promised land, and the majority came back and said that there were Nephilim in the land, and and to them, we were like grasshoppers. It's the comparison of themselves to grasshoppers that inspired the translation of Nephilim as giants. Of course, it's possible that they were unusually large in stature, but not like the giants were accustomed to in stories like Jack and the Beanstalk. The spies were afraid because the people who were already living in the land were fierce, intimidating warriors. In Genesis, we're told that the Nephilim were the men of renown. They were not famous for their faithfulness or piety, but for their pride and strength. They were the first nobility of the world, the mob bosses, the the violent patriarchs like Cain's Lamech. This brings us to verse 5, which is key to the point of this passage. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. These are not innocent people being judged harshly by God. They were totally depraved. Their wickedness wasn't just in their actions, but in the intentions of their heart, which means that it's not the case that they were good people doing bad things, but that they were bad people, and that's why they were doing bad things. 
every intention of their heart was only evil. Not a mixture of good and evil, but only evil, continually. And it grieved the Lord. Another unusual thing in this passage, how can God, who knows all things, made all things, determines all things, and and never changes, how can he have regrets? Well, he, he doesn't have regrets in the way that we do. This is an example of anthropomorphic language, language that ascribes human characteristics to God as a way of helping us understand him. It's like when the Bible talks about the finger of God or the eyes of God. Now, God, the Father, is a spirit and does not have a body like men, but the language helps us understand how he relates to creation by putting it in terms we know. God is looking at his prized creation, which he made in his image, and he no longer sees his image at all. He is disassociating himself with it, as if to say, this is not my workmanship. The judgment announced in verse 3 is then detailed in verse 7. I will blot out man, whom I have created from the face of the land, man and and animals, and creeping things, and birds of the heavens. The judgment is severe and unsettling because in it we see the fate that we deserve for our own sin. It's tempting to look at this passage and think that people must have been more wicked back then than they are now, but that's not the case. Our passage from Ephesians reminds us of this. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. We, who by faith are united to Jesus Christ, were every bit like the sons of disobedience, the seed of Cain. But there is great hope. The story doesn't end with Genesis chapter 6, verse 7. Nor does the Ephesians passage end at verse 3. Verse 4 says, But God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Likewise, verse 8 in our passage from Genesis says, But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is the first explicit Mention of grace, translated here as favor. Hope is not lost for humanity because Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. He received God's grace. In the same way, our sin, which deserves death, is not the end of us because through faith in Jesus, which is a gift of grace, 
we have been given life. And so God doesn't look upon us with regret, no longer seeing his image in us at all. Rather, through Christ, he sees us as Ephesians 2 verse 10 describes. We are his workmanship. If your faith is not in Jesus, then let me encourage you to not wait 120 years for the day of God's judgment to come, but rather here and now, while it's on your mind, prayerfully commit yourself to him and turn from your sin. The good news of the gospel is for you. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to Witness, a ministry of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Jackson, Mississippi. 